thanks for listening to The Church at 112, where we gather together to encourage and equip each other into a growing relationship with Jesus. Now, here's today's message. Newsletters that we email out, we don't, we don't shoot emails out every week, but um, we would be happy for you to pray for us and our work in Asia there. Uh, we do have two children, Rebecca is almost 13, and Reed is seven years old. And uh, Rebecca was just a baby when we went to South Asia, and Reed was born there in South Asia. Now, Christy and I met, actually. Um, I'm not from this area. I, my father was in the military, and I went to high school and college in Oklahoma. Um, but after uh, college, I went to Uganda for two years as a single uh, missionary. And it was there that Christy, who is from the area, uh, she uh, came over there also as a single missionary and the Lord brought us together and uh, brought us to the seminary at New Orleans. And so I've never really had a place that is home uh, moving so much. And so New Orleans and Hancock County and Mississippi have become my adopted homes. Um, and uh, it's been a pleasure uh, being, you know, a part of, of churches around this area and, and meeting so many people around this area. And so we're so excited about what James and Mary and their family and you all are doing here in this community. And we're excited that uh, we could share with you this morning just a little bit about who we are and a little bit about, um, you know, how you can participate in God's heart for the nations. And so I'm just going to do a couple different things. I'm going to be sharing out of Matthew chapter 23, the end of the chapter, and then into chapter 24. Um, I will get to that. I, I do want to share with you from the Bible, kind of Jesus' heart for people everywhere. And so I do want to share that. But before that, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about what our life looks like as overseas workers, uh, with the International Mission Board. Um, you know, life is the same everywhere in a way. You know, we have to, you know, have a place to sleep. We have to have stores or markets where we buy our food. We have to cook our food. I mean, the basics are there. The, the basic framework is not that much different than life here. Uh, but everywhere in the world, if you've ever traveled elsewhere in the world, it just... You know, it has different shades of what it looks like. Okay, we might get all of our groceries in one store here. We might get all our groceries and everything else we need if we just go to Walmart. But over there, life, like we get our, you know, potatoes from one guy and our, our green vegetables from another guy and any meat we want, we have to figure out if they even sell that meat in our country because, you know, religious restrictions on what you can eat and can't eat and and then we have to you know buy our cooking oil and our cooking gas other places and so life just looks a lot different and and that keeps us busy a lot of the time but the the masses of people i think that we live among is the biggest thing that shocks our system that shocked our system when we came and and shocks the system of most foreigners most americans who come to our part of Asia, uh, you know, we live in a, we call it a small town of one and a half million people. 
And it really is like a small town, like the roads in Diamond Head are better, bigger, wider than the, the main roads in our area. And yet we have, you know, one and a half million people within a, you know, five mile radius of our uh, town center. And, and so that is the biggest thing. We also live in an area that is just overtly religious. Okay, overtly religious. We, we, you know, come from a country where even in the South here where you could or you used to could at least expect people to kind of have some religious or Christian even background in their families. Um, now, that's something that you don't just automatically start out with the strains you're talking about here. Well, where we live, you cannot avoid religion. You cannot avoid the thoughts of how do the eternal things of, of our world, how does the spiritual realm relate to me physically, relate to my family, relate to you know, a sickness that my sister is going through. You know, you cannot avoid, you cannot separate those things. And we can tell in Asia where we live, we can tell most of the time by what a person looks like, but definitely when we hear a person's name, we can tell what kind of religion their family follows, what kind of religion they follow. You can tell by their names. You have to put it in all your legal documents, what religion you are. Some of the first questions you can have totally appropriate with a stranger are, oh, you're a Muslim, I can see that. You know, how is Islam in your life? What does it do for you? Those questions are just so easy to ask. And they ask the same questions of us. Oh, you're a Christian, so like the Virgin Mary, what's she? And we're like, well, we're not exactly that kind of Christian. Let me tell you about Jesus. And so getting into the conversations is not a big barrier for us, like it is uh, for many you know, evangelicals here, in, even in Mississippi. And we have that opportunity and we're blessed to have that opportunity. But with those massive number of people come just the challenge of what do you do? What do you do when you could share the gospel with anyone and you want to share the gospel with everyone because you really believe that God desires that all of these Muslims and Buddhists that live around us and Hindus that are surrounding us God wants them all to hear the gospel. And so what do we do with our time? And we have to take it from two different levels. We have to take it from the, the macro level, the big picture. God, you have us out here three years at a time. Now we might come back for some vacation or visits or family events, but mostly we stay out around three years and then we come back around six months at a time. And we were supposed to go back even this month uh, after our third term, but I, I ruptured my Achilles, and so we're medically delayed for a few extra weeks, maybe a month or a month and a half. But um, on that big picture, God, what do you want us to do in these three years? Because right now, we're okay living where we are, but there's always a question every time we leave the country and come back, are they going to let us back in? What if God pulled us out? What if, 
there's a global pandemic and we have to leave the country and there are no more missionaries in our area. God, how can we best prepare the believers who are here, the Christians who are here, for that impending reality or, or that possibility? And so we think on the big picture, we want healthy local churches. On the big picture, we want healthy, local, indigenous-led, indigenous-supported, uh, indigenous-propagating churches. And so, how can we get to that with strong biblical leadership and healthy church life that ministers not only in sharing the gospel, but ministers to their communities in all these other ways? And so that's the end goal that we're shooting for. I think that was Stephen Covey, right? Begin with the end in mind was one of his seven habits. I'm remembering my college classes. Begin with the end in mind. So that's the end on a big picture level of what we shoot for. And so how do I get from entering a village where there are no Christians over to healthy church, strong indigenous leadership? Well, it starts with, you know, forming relationships and sharing the gospel. And then once people believe, and I don't do any of this alone, there are Christians from other towns, Christians from our town who are nationals who come with me along. Maybe they need modeling. Maybe they need encouragement. Maybe they need teaching. We go together. We do evangelism. And then we, once believers are there, we do discipleship. And we form churches not a lot different, smaller than this church even. And and they mostly meet in homes or in offices or in rented spaces, all right? Most of them don't have church buildings just because Christianity is, you know, 1% of the population in the country that we serve in. And after discipleship, as we are doing evangelism, as we are doing discipleship, we are working on finding, praying for those biblical leaders who can support that healthy church when I and when my national partners from other towns leave that area. Because we will, because there are, you know, when we first went, we went to a state the size of Tennessee that has a huge population, 118 million people in a state the size of Tennessee. That was our goal. There were 45,000 villages, 45,000 villages, we would call, you know, villages being, you know, several thousand people at least, 45,000 people in a, a state that size. That's where we first went, and there were an estimated 45,000 evangelical Christians in that state. So 118 million people, 45,000 believers. We, ha we can't just stay in one spot and, and work with the leadership and the new disciples in one village every day of the week. And so we do a lot of moving. We do a lot of, of driving around. But the key to that is the relationship that I have with those believers over there. And Christy does similar type of work. You know, we are a very divided society and so from, by gender. Whatever religion you are, it doesn't matter if you're Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, very divided in most uh, spheres other than the, the immediate family. And so Christy has half the population that she is able to form relationships with that it's totally inappropriate 
for me or my male partners to form relationship with. And so she uses, you know, all kinds of different uh, like answers to the challenges that, that women face in uh, the country we live in that, you know, how does, you know, how does pregnancy work? You know, these are, these are ladies who, they get pregnant and they have a lot of babies. You can see by the population, but they don't really understand what's going on in their bodies. And so Christy and her partners can go in and do educational training on, you know, this is how your menstrual cycle works. This is how your pregnancy works. This is how, you know, when your husband who doesn't want any girl babies, you know, wants you to, pressures you to take this pill and abort the baby. This is what is really happening in your body. And so they go in through those types of educational opportunities and the men aren't there, mostly the men from the, the religious, you know, doorkeepers from these other religions. They, they don't want to hear about menstrual cycles and, and breast cancer awareness and things like that. So Christy and her partners have the opportunity to educate these women and share the gospel. And when those women come to faith, to disciple them, to form those relationships, to see whole households, when the women come, come to faith as well. And so that's a little bit of what our daily life looks like. Now we have other responsibilities, as most people do in our organization, training new people that come out since we've been there for so long, you know, teaching them how to learn the languages. You know, we continue to learn the language better and better so that we can be more effective. But that's a little bit about kind of what our daily life looks like. I want to look at Matthew chapter 23. You know, Jesus, and there's a debate even, a friendly debate I'll say, among missiologists we call ourselves, people who study missions or who think about missions and what's the best way to do missions in different contexts. And, and there's a debate on, well, should we, do we have a better example of, of missions in the life of Jesus or in the life of Paul? And it, there, it's a healthy debate, and, and I don't know that there's a, a right answer because Paul said, you know, I look to Christ, you can look to me. If, if, it, you know, if you're a, a Greek over in Athens and you don't really understand who this Jew in Palestine was, look to me because I'm trying to emulate Christ. So I don't think it is a, a mutually exclusive one or the other. But... I think the way that Paul interacted with people and his heart was the same as Jesus interacting with people and his heart for all people. My wife can tell you that I'm probably one of the more nostalgic people, uh, probably in the world. I mean, definitely in this room. Um, like, she... She loves my family and she loves like where I went to high school and my, what I consider my hometown where my dad lives. But I think it really hit her after a couple years of marriage. We've been married 19 years. It really hit her after maybe a couple years of marriage that, man, we're going to James's dad's house. He's going to tell me where his first job was and where he had a wreck one time when he was in high school and where he you know, used to play basketball. And she's going to tell me all of these things because I love just 
man, that's like the formative experience after my dad finally retired from the Navy and we moved to, when I was in high school, this is like where I, my personality and my future was formed. And when she complains, I can just say, you know, you wouldn't have met me if it weren't for this dirt road or if it weren't for this small church or, or this college ministry or whatever. You never would have met me. So you have to listen to this. It's your responsibility as a wife. And so I'm very nostalgic. And, and I think I see, I don't think I'm misreading the text when, when here in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 37, Jesus is crying out. And I'm going to read a passage and, and talk about it for a second. And then I'll read a little more. Jesus is crying out here before his crucifixion in, in Matthew. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus loved Jerusalem. He loved the temple where the Spirit of God dwelt. He loved his people, the Jews. He made these trips growing up from Nazareth down to Jerusalem at least once a year, probably three times a year, like most Jews who lived in Palestine. And when the, the big festivals would come, your family would load up or, or walk, depending on how far you were, down to Jerusalem. And it was just... It was like, I don't know what to compare it to, maybe Disney World for people from Mississippi, where it's like, think of the memories that your family have or your kids have of Disney World. It's like, we only go there once a year, but it is the, the greatest place on earth and your kids will grow up and if they live close enough, they'll probably take their whole family to Disney World uh, as much as they can. It's just this nostalgia of this is our happy place. And I think Jerusalem was for that for Jesus. And he's sitting here knowing he's about to be gone and not see Jerusalem physically and they won't see him physically. And he says, man, I wish, I wish, I wish that you, Jerusalem, would just turn to God. I, I wish you would. You are my people. This is my home. This, is, this was the formative place for me Jesus says, and yet you stone the prophets. Those who come to speak for God to you, you cast them out. You kill them. And Jesus, I think, was undergoing a little bit of nostalgia here, saying, I want my people to be reached. Now, I didn't really intend on doing this. I know I won't go too long. But sounds exactly like Paul there in Romans, Romans chapter 9, is it? Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ, and this is Paul, I am not lying, my conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish, listen to this, 
Romans 9.3, For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefits of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and all the promises. Paul and Jesus, kind of the same thing. Man, I wish the Jews would turn to God. I wish my people would turn to God. Jesus certainly has a heart for His own people, the Jews. But Jesus is also knows that He has the disciples around Him as He's here, as He's looking at the temple. And He goes on in, in chapter 24 of Matthew. Verse 1, As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, His disciples came up and called His attentions to the building. Now, now this was huge. Like, for modern times, for our times, we have a lot of big buildings. Like, you know, we, go to, we went to First Baptist Jackson. It's just an enormous complex, huge, so many hallways, such a beautiful, old, en enormous sanctuary. And I know, like, back in 2018, we went to the U.S. Capitol. It's just marble and all these passageways and columns and just beautiful there weren't a lot of those buildings of that size in the first century, especially first century Palestine, but the temple was one of them. The, the temple of, of Herod the Great, that had the second temple we call it, it was probably the size of the U.S. Capitol, probably much bigger than First Baptist Jackson, Mississippi. And this is you know, 2,000 years ago. There were no buildings like this. Let me think. I'm a church history PhD, so I'm... I'm a little qualified. I mean, maybe in Rome, but the Colosseum hadn't even been built at this time. And the Colosseum, and so I would venture to say there were probably no buildings this big in the entire world, uh, or at least anywhere that anyone had ever seen. Because there were no buildings in Rome this big, as big as the temple. And so the disciples talked to Jesus Jesus, look at the, look at the buildings. Look at this. This is our place. This is the Jews' place. In verse 2, Jesus replied to them, Do you see all these things? You see these buildings, these stones? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Man, they, wanted to, they were very proud of their building. Very nostalgic. How would you feel if someone's pointed at Disney? You know, Disney World, they're tearing it down. What? What? No, that is my place. They cannot tear it. The U.S. Capitol, they're just, it's going to be destroyed. No, that can't happen. That's our country. They can't tear it down. And Jesus told them, you can't just hang on, guys. You can't just hang on to, to this. And he, he goes further, and I'm not going to read all the verses, but he goes on and... and um, tells them about the end times because when this temple gets destroyed, which we know happened in 70 AD, when this temple gets destroyed by the Romans, there's going to be all kinds of people saying, this is the end. This is definitely the end of Jewish life in Palestine. This may be the end of the entire world. That's how you know, some of your kids would feel if Disney World's getting torn down. That my life is over. Uh, um, but 
that's how the disciples felt. And so Jesus explains to them a little further, starting in verse 4. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Because these things happen. These things must take place. But the end is not yet. It's not the end of the world, kids. Mickey will pop up somewhere else. For nation will rise against nation, verse 7, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these events, they're just the beginning of the labor pains. So Jesus is saying, it's not the end. This is kind of the beginning of the end. But you don't know exactly when the end of the end is going to happen. In verse 9, Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets... Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness will multiply and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I first heard the gospel, I didn't become a Christian until I was in 10th grade, 15 years old, but I didn't even hear the gospel until a couple years before that, um, having been raised in a family that was not religious. And I, I was first heard the gospel and was saved and baptized in a tiny, tiny country church out in rural Oklahoma, like the poorest county in Oklahoma, like just facts, poorest county in Oklahoma and uh, 15,000 people in our county. And this little country church where these people loved me and that's all I was looking for and that's all I knew. These people loved me and they cared about me and they cared enough about me that they told me the gospel, first of all, among other things, but they told me the gospel and, but they would always look at this like life was hard there. Life is still hard there. And they, they were looking for hope and their hope was in this streets of gold and in the crystal sea and in heaven because life on earth where they were was not very good and they were looking for the end. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. It's going to be horrible, guys. You're going to have to flee because they're going to be looking for all Jews and killing all Jews. They're going to tear down Jerusalem. They're not going to let Jews live in Jerusalem anymore. And that's, that's a fact that happened. And you're going to be looking for hope, guys. A lot of bad things are going to happen, but the Messiah isn't coming back. I am not coming back then. Why? And this is verse 14. And this is where I'm going to stop here. Verse 14, Jesus tells them, this is why the end is not yet when just Jerusalem is destroyed. And if you could just memorize one verse uh, related to, you know, the end times related to hope, related to missions around the world. I want you to see Jesus' heart right here for the nations. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. 
This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. A couple things just on that verse. Good news, the good news, my translation says. Your translation, I don't know what you use, may say gospel. It's the exact same thing, okay? Evangel. It's in Greek, I won't tell you the Greek word, but it's the word where we get evangelism from. So evangelism or the gospel, the sharing of the gospel or the sharing of the good news of the kingdom, that's all the same thing. And Jesus says this gospel, this good news will be proclaimed where? In all the world. Now, a lot of missiologists spend their whole lives on that one little phrase, in the whole world, and I'm not going to do that, and I think it's probably, probably they get so focused on that phrase, some missiologists, that they kind of miss the bigger picture. But what that phrase means, in all the world, in Greek, again, I don't need to say the words to you, but it means every nation, every nation, and nation not as in, like, Italy and Israel and the United States, it's every People, okay, every people, every, you might say tribe. So every people will have the good news proclaimed to them and then the end will come. And Jesus doesn't just say this for our benefit in the 21st century, although he does say it for our benefit. Because, man, I had no idea what foreign missions was growing up. Uh, no idea, certainly. Even after I became a Christian in that small country church, we were so focused upon heaven and the end times sometimes that, that the idea that me coming from the poorest county in Oklahoma could go to Uganda, could go to Kenya, could go to India, that was just not a reality for me. There was no way that that could happen. And yet, God had a way because God wanted people in the West Nile of Uganda where I lived up you know, 20 miles from Sudan with no electricity and no plumbing. He wanted some of those youth that were you know, my age, 21, 22, after I graduated college, he wanted them to hear the gospel and to come to faith and be baptized and to start churches there. And then when I was in Kenya working around Nairobi, he wanted some of those executives from you know, different parts of the former British Empire and from Kenya itself, he wanted some of them to hear the gospel and to be baptized, to be saved, and to, to start healthy churches. And he wanted us to go to you know, the foothills of the Himalayas where we've lived the last 11 years. And he wanted us to, to share the gospel to some peoples who had never heard. And I could give testimonies if we had time about the way that God has done this, that we've seen this. We've been around 11 years long enough to, to see it start out really slowly and slogging through the mud, but then for God to do things in people's lives and in communities and in people groups that were unengaged 11 years ago, and we could barely pronounce their names, that have churches now 11 years later. And he didn't do it through Christy and I because we're something special. He did it through us just because we were willing and I think that's what Jesus is trying to get. What we can see is this transition from Matthew 23 to Matthew 24. Jesus is showing his disciples, I love Jerusalem and I love my people. But that's not all there is. 
that we, and I cannot just have the gospel stay here and I have to die, Jesus says, so that the gospel... Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it was encouraging for you and that you have a great week. God bless.